Hey everyone, it's Hippa, ILSR's Communications Manager, and I have Zach with me here today from our Community Scaled Economies team. Hey! So Zach has been involved in producing Building Local Power. You've probably heard his name on the credits of the show, but today he actually did the interview you're about to hear. That's right. Uh, I interviewed Kevin Erickson, who works at the Future of Music Coalition, which is an organization that helps do political advocacy on behalf of working musicians. We talked a lot about the music industry's connection to our growing anti-monopoly movement. I really enjoyed this interview because it's a little bit outside the bounds of the issue areas we normally work on, like energy or broadband, but still very much related and really illustrates why concentration is bad across all sectors of the economy. I'm wondering, Zach, what inspired you to do the interview? Did you know that concentration was an issue in the music industry beforehand? Oh yeah, definitely. So aside from like most people being a lifelong music fan, I have two working musicians in my family and uh, most of my friends are musicians. Um, I also help, uh, help organize shows in DC and did uh, college radio in school. So it's a topic that's always been near and dear to me and definitely um, noticed trends towards consolidation in the music industry at large. That's great. I think it's really cool to hear what inspired the conversation. I don't have a lot of background, so I learned a lot of new things about the music industry listening to the interview. I was really shocked to hear that there are only three major record labels left today, um, down from six in 1995. So Kevin explains how they're really the gatekeepers and they have the ability to use their market power to shape the marketplace for everyone else. It was one of those moments where like, you know something is important and it's an issue, but I realized like, wow, this is really bad. And it was a wake up call. Yeah, definitely. And Kevin really hits the nail on the head in our interview when he says that uh, we're at this critical point in our national anti-monopoly movement. Um, and there's a lot that independent musicians and working musicians can uh, contribute. Yeah, that really resonated with me. I love how Kevin is helping musicians step up and claim space in the larger conversation. Um, also because there's a really clear link between local economies and musicians. They're basically small businesses and they create value, both monetary but also cultural. So they're a really important link to the local community and the societal fabric. That's absolutely right. And in some ways, as Kevin points out, the individual entrepreneur kind of independent business model uh, of many working musicians presents a lot of challenges. Uh, so part of the work his org does is help uh, independent musicians think of themselves as a collective group, especially when they advocate uh, for issues that have an impact on their well-being, like healthcare. Awesome. Thanks for chatting, Zach. We hope that gives you all a flavor of what's to come. Let's get to the interview. Today on the podcast, we have Kevin Erickson, uh, from the Future of Music Coalition. To start us off, Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about your organization? So Future of Music Coalition is uh, a nonprofit activist think tank. Um, we work to ensure that musicians and composers have a voice on all of the range of issues that impact their lives and their livelihoods. Um, and we do that through education, research, and advocacy. We were founded in uh, the year 2000, right about the time that the digital transition in music and in the music industries was really taking hold. And at that moment, it became clear that if artists didn't have an independent voice in those discussions, that, that 
all of these industry issues and changes would be framed as uh, a battle between different commercial stakeholders, um, between different competing business interests. Uh, but musicians themselves as workers have a huge stake in those issues and so do audiences, um, diverse audiences and diverse communities. Uh, you know, music is really special. It's about more than celebrity and commerce and entertainment. It's, it's a place where community voices and needs are elevated and where shared values are forged. It has this whole range of um, social and political implications outside of its marketplace value. and so. One of the things that makes us unique is that we try to take a holistic view of the federal policy landscape and, and work on some of the issues that other organizations don't. So sure, we've worked on some of the issues that you'd expect, uh, like copyright and licensing and transparency and making sure the money gets to where it's supposed to go. Uh, but we were also early supporters of net neutrality, for example, um, understanding that issue as a freedom of expression issue, but also as an access to audience issue for, for working musicians. We did the first research into musicians' access to health insurance um, and understanding the unique needs and the barriers to coverage that musicians were facing. Uh, we've done original research into the impacts of ownership consolidation and radio. Uh, and we continue to work on that issue and work for a media ecosystem that can serve the needs of diverse uh, local music communities. We've worked to illuminate and demystify uh, changing business models and in the face of all of the changes that are happening in the industry every day, we've tried to hold the full range of musicians, business partners accountable and make information accessible. That accessibility piece is important because the, our organization has roots in the, the DIY ethos of the modern independent music movement and specifically the punk communities here in, in DC. Among the early important folks working at the organization were Kristen Thompson and Jenny Toomey, who played in a band called Tsunami, uh, ran an independent record label called Simple Machines, and, uh, and put out a famous zine uh, called The Mechanic's Guide to Putting Out Records that broke down the logistics of how a record is released. Uh, just here's how to contact a pressing plant, and here's how mastering works, and here's how uh, distribution works here. Here's how you can get your re release physically into independent record shops around the country. Uh, those kinds of practical things. Probably hundreds of little independent labels put out their first seven inch record because of that zine and then later CDs. And so we try and apply the same idea to policy that you can learn as you go. It's like this iterative learning process that sh you can share what you learn. And then you also can just sort of step up and claim your space in these policy conversations. Your voice already matters and you don't need um, permission from, from anybody in a position of authority. You don't need anyone's approval to, to, to claim your voice. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, what led you to this work? Music has always been really central to my life. Um, in college, I got involved with my college radio station, KWCW 90.5 FM, Walla Walla. Um, and uh, through that, got involved in booking shows for touring musicians who were coming through town, um, mostly centered around the independent music community um, of the Pacific Northwest. Uh, and then making friends with those folks and discovering that there was just this vast networked intersecting set of music communities all around the country, working musicians, el like 
sharing ideas and sharing what was going on in their local local scenes. Um, but there was a real gap between the way that popular media was talking about those musicians and their lives and the reality that I saw um, in amongst my new friends. Um, and, you know, I think this was like peak MTV Cribs era. Do you remember that show? Oh, yeah. Okay, so MTV Cribs, for anybody who's younger than us, I guess, was this show that, that like, you got to tour... Um, the mansion of the guy from Smash Mouth or something like that. And so everybody had this perception that musicians were just doing really, really well economically. And, uh, you know, it obscured the real, like, conditions of labor that most people were experiencing. I think that's changed now. But um, at, at the time, that gap was really pronounced and really deeply felt. Um, so, you know, after that, I ran an all-ages venue and art space in a small town um, while working a music retail job and got to understand more of the, the mechanics and logistics of what was happening in the industry. Um, got to do some organizing work trying to make it easier to start and run those kinds of spaces and make sure that more local communities had access to live music, especially for young people. And from there, got into the policy aspects of it because, you know, for starting at the local level to m make a space like that work, you kind of have to make friends with the local fire department and take the mayor out to lunch and, uh, and, uh, and then recognizing that people are facing the same kinds of policy dynamics in different local communities, that there can be shared strategies and resources that, that, um, that we're stronger working together. And then ultimately I was invited to come out and speak at the Future of Music uh, Coalition conference and met a bunch of people out here um, and uh, not long after, joined joined the up uh, with the team. Uh, it was like 2012. That's really interesting. Thanks for that, Kevin. So at ILSR, a lot of the work that we do is in the space of anti-monopoly policy. Why should a working musician care about monopolies and competition policy? Like, what, what is what bearing does this have on on the lives of working musicians? Yeah, so I guess one way to think about it is what what kind of a marketplace makes it possible for broad participation to happen and for markets to be structured in ways that allow for the greatest amount of participation and for cultural diversity. Um, participation in the sense that music isn't just limited to the kinds of people that have the right connections or the right relationships with the right corporations to be able to get their music to audiences, to be able to tour sustainably. Participation in the sense of looking at all different kinds of metrics of diversity. Um, you know, historically, this, the industry has been exclusionary um, to different kinds of voices and different kinds of um, genres and based on based on um, you know what the predominant market actors um, want to elevate and and I think similarly there's this there's this thread that's about um, that connects diversity of expression to diversity of business models so there isn't one business model for how you make a living as a musician there's there's always been lots of different business models and today there are more than ever and um, what's important in the face of that is to have a range of choices um, to 
let communities and individual creators decide what kinds of business models work for them rather than having like one size fits all models imposed on the top uh, or from the top. And uh, so, you know, like my first in- encounter with ILSR's work was when I was living in a small town. And after I'd moved away from that small town, there was a controversy about big box stores coming in wanting to drop a big, I'm not sure if it was a Walmart or what, on, on the, in the town that I was living in. And we were thinking about like, well, what, what possibilities does that preclude for independent retail um, for the indie record store that I used to work at? Um, and for and the impacts on the communities and like how could markets instead be structured? How could policy choices instead be structured to keep things community centered? When that conversation shifts to music, we have observed consolidation in almost every part of the music industry and in adjacent industries. And in almost every example that we can think of, that's had negative implications for musicians themselves, both in terms of their ability to reach audiences on their own terms, and it's had negative implications for um, musicians' ability to earn fair and sustainable levels of compensation and for the working conditions that they're operating under. And that's in addition to other kinds of public interest harms and problems that consumers and music listeners and music fans are facing. You know, like the the anti-monopoly piece and the idea that you want to structure markets in in ways that maximize real choice and real diversity, it's always been a thread that's run through all of our historical work, like looking at digital economies, looking at policies like net neutrality, uh, looking at the ticketing marketplace back when the Ticketmaster Live Nation merger um, was under consideration. It's always been a thread. Mm -hmm. But I think at this political moment where we have this growing collective, all-hands-on-deck national anti-monopoly moment, I think that there's something really important that the music community can contribute just because we've got so much direct experience with the impacts of ownership consolidation and monopolies in our own industries. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power. Now, this is the part of the podcast where you usually hear something about a mattress company issuing loans for audiobooks or something like that. But that's not really how it works here at ILSR. We're a national organization that supports local economies, which means we don't accept national advertising. Please consider making a donation to ILSR instead. Not only does your support underwrite this podcast, but it also helps produce all the resources and research we make available for free on our website, like the one we're discussing today. Please take a minute and go to ilsr.org donate. Uh, any amount is welcome and sincerely appreciated. That's ilsr.org donate. Thank you so much. And now back to the interview. So kind of moving into from the more like broad summary level, thought we could spend some time talking about different sectors of the music industry and to just sort of break it down and make it more real for our listeners. In terms of the label sector, how has that space undergone concentration and what has that meant for musicians? Yeah, so historically we've talked about, people have talked about 
record labels as a kind of gatekeeper. And, you know, like in 1995, I think there were six major labels. Um, and today we're down to three. It's just Sony, uh, Warner, and Universal Music Group are the, the three remaining major labels. The challenges that come with that level of consolidation in that sector is that those three companies have the ability to use their market power uh, in ways that shape the marketplace for everybody else. Uh, and that's especially true as we were moving more and more into a digital environment. I think that there was, uh, you know, in the 90s, there was an extent to which uh, if you didn't like the way that the major labels were running their business, you could just start a little independent label and run your business differently. You'd run into some distribution bottlenecks and you'd run into like challenges getting your record on the shelf in stores. But if their business model that, for example, that was based on like moving lots and lots of units and uh, paying out a smaller royalty rate to artists, but if it worked out it, uh, for that particular artist, if they could make it up in volume, then it's okay that the, the royalty rate is smaller. So independent labels in that era were, were able to say, well, we're gonna just spend less on overhead and do a 50-50 profit split um, and that way, we're not required to operate at such a massive scale. That worked especially well because they were op often offering music that was not targeting mass audiences. You know, instead of just doing pop hits that had the chance to sell millions or hundreds of thousands of copies of records, you could put out records that would sell 10,000 copies, um, 20,000 copies, and that would be a m one one of many meaningful income sources for the artist if it was happening on a 50-50 profit split. The the word that we use in the industry is recoup. So that you'd be able to recoup um, on your investment um, and make sure that the artist was actually earning royalties earlier. When you have a handful of companies controlling the marketplace and it's shifting more and more towards centralized digital platforms, the the market gets constructed in ways that work well for the biggest stakeholders, but might not work as well for the the little guys, the smaller entrants in the marketplace. And so we're stuck with a sort of a one-size business model at a time when these uh, technological innovations should be diversifying the kinds of business models that are available to, to artists. Yeah, that's kind of the story of platform capitalism writ large, really. And when you say platforms, do you mean like Spotify? What are you What are you referring to? Platform is sort of a slippery word, and I think that's something that has come out in these FTC conversations, that it, it can be applied in a bunch of different contexts. I think that in terms of the some of the biggest and highest profile conversations right now, certainly the structure of the on-demand full catalog streaming services like, like Spotify, like Apple Music, um, like Amazon's new offering and Google's offering are one of the central places that battle plays out. You know, because they um, because they do have a kind of gatekeeper power, and um, more and more, um, you know, it varies from service to service. But they they haven't been shy about using that that gatekeeper power, you know, in in ways that advance their interests and uh, limit the amount of leverage that independent creators have especially in an environment of cross-ownership and consolidation across different 
parts of the industries, everything's turning into platforms. Ticketing companies are platforms. Let's just take that opportunity to kind of transition into the live music space. Do you think you could tell our listeners about some of the big mergers that have uh, taken place in the in the live space and the ticketing space and what that has meant for people who go to live music events and for people who perform live and sure so the the ideal situation is you have a bunch of different promoters um, in a city and you have a bunch of different ticketing partners and they're and the ticketing companies are all working to better to compete to better serve. Um, audiences and better serve the artists and better serve the promoters and the promoters are working similarly to better serve um, artists and better serve the communities and um, and so you have this healthy virtuous ecosystem when consolidation happens it creates um, incentives to use the kind of gatekeeper power that they have in anti-competitive ways and so it means different things for different in different markets and for different stakeholders. But certainly one of the reasons that we have ridiculously high ticketing fees is because there's not real robust competition in that space um, with the merger of Live Nation and Ticketmaster, which I think is one that, that merits reconsideration, especially now that the, the conditions on the, that merger are expiring. Like, there's powerful incentives to drive things more and more in the direction of using their gatekeeper access point. So it's like the one company that you kind of can't avoid working with. Mm -hmm. And so they get to set the terms of engagement for the marketplace. And so they're able to move things more and more the direction of more invasive data practices about audiences. They're able to use their reach across all of the different markets to create these consolidated data sets so they are able to know how artists are going to do in different markets, then leverage that data against the, the few remaining small independent promoters uh, in other markets. And, and, uh, and so they have a kind of competitive power that only comes with operating at that big scale. So even if the little guys are able to start collecting more data and try and use their data about attendance um, to calibrate how they put on a show and what kind of offers they make bands and how they do the ticket price, um, because they're not able to have access to what's happening in all the other markets, they don't have the advantages of, of operating at scale. I, I don't want to only single out Ticketmaster here. We think in, in a lot of cities, like we're, we're lucky in DC that we still have some, some strong independent promoters, but in a lot of cities, we have an effective duopoly uh, between um, Ticketmaster Live Nation and AEG. And uh, both, both in owning the venues themselves, but also on the festival circuit. You know, the festival circuit more and more is an important, important source of revenue um, for artists who, for the kinds of artists who can get those gigs and are playing them. To the extent that it's fewer and fewer um, companies owning more and more festivals, there's less space for risk taking. There's less space for actually staying in touch with what's happening in a local or regional scene and wanting to elevate those kinds of voices. And so the, the negative incentives kind of 
accelerate each other. You get kind of a negative feedback loop. So from the way that you're describing sort of the transformation of the music industry, it sounds like with the changing marketplace and increasing consolidation across different spaces, live ticketing, labels, it's becoming harder and harder for independent musicians and music fans to escape the sort of clutches of these large monopolies so like Spotify, Apple Music, Live Nation, AEG, the four majors that are the three majors, sorry, that are still left. So outside of kind of uh, the consolidation space, what uh, other policy areas would you say impact working musicians the most? Well, I think a huge one is just healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there are a number of things that have really improved as a result of the passage of the Affordable Care Act. The, the essential benefits provisions are especially, you know, the, the inclusion of preventative care, substance abuse and mental health treatment. That's really important for populations that have ele- elevated risks of su- substance abuse, elevated risks of mental health um, issues. Those, those things have been really meaningful, but access remains a problem. Um, affordability remains a problem. Uh, whether, whether a plan is actually affordable can still vary so much based on geography, based on whether you're in a state that has accepted Medicaid expansion. And so as we're looking forward towards what's next for the health policy debate for working musicians, I think we have to look very seriously at Medicare for All. We have to look at models that no longer tie access to healthcare to a particular employer relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's just because musicians are a great example of a population that doesn't have a traditional employment relationship. Uh, rather than, there are exceptions, like a symphony orchestra player is employed by the symphony and so they can have a traditional insurance plan or have a union negotiated insurance plan or uh, recording artists for major labels can have access to a union health plan, which is negotiated by the union as part of those deals. That's great. But many, many musicians don't have access to those kinds of things and don't have um, access to the employer-provided care. So a single-payer approach, a Medicare-for-all approach, would just be infin- infinitely easier um, and more humane. Mm-hmm. Even the process of shopping for a plan for people who are on the road so much of the year uh, can just be super challenging. Finding a plan that covers out-of-network care. If you're on the road um, and you have an injury on tour, it's a big question whether you're going to be able to find a provider that's covered when you're in Cleveland or whatever. Those are unique considerations that that this population deals with that other, that um, and I think it's common for other kinds of gig workers as well, but there, there's things that are unique to music, and, and that's what's driving us more and more towards the single-payer conversation. Mm-hmm. Thank you all for tuning into this episode of Building Local Power from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find all the links to what we discussed today at ILSR.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's, again, I-L-S-R While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. Finally, 
You can help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast, gets us great guests like Kevin, and produce original research on the way monopolies are impacting our economy. Once again, please help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you find podcasts. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and me, Zach Freed. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I am Zach Freed, and I hope you join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Yeah.